Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from Swansea in the United Kingdom and with me, as always, is... It's Brian in the freezing cold winter wonderland of Buffalo, New York. How are you, Lauren? Well, firstly, I'd just like to say that's not what you were saying on um, Facebook. You were complaining about that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just get that straight now. Um, I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Had a bit of adventure with uh, a cat jumping into a window today. But yeah, what's the deal with that? Was it Cleo? Did she run away to go to try to live with you? No, it was a black and white cat. But um, my sister had left the window open and she had her curtains closed. So I'd gone down to look after Theo after he's dropped down by his dad. And... Um, and I didn't notice. I was just a bit concerned because I couldn't get the house to heat up, but I didn't draw the curtains open to see if a window was open or anything. So me and uh, me and uh, Theo were sitting down watching telly, and then you know, th- this cat was noiseless. And then all of a sudden, I see a cat sitting there, looking at us. I was like, "There's a cat in your house." And he goes, "No, there's not." So I get up and the cat walks straight to the kitchen and I couldn't get it out and I'm not quite sure who this cat is so I don't want to pick it up because A, I might distress it and it might lash out and B, I don't know if I'm bringing any worms or parasites back to my dog Bell. So I thought, oh, okay, I can't just sort of escort it out. And it was quite a friendly little thing. So I fed it, so I took a can of tuna to the door, put the tuna on the doorstep and closed the door behind the cat. Oh, I love cans of tuna. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and Theo was very impressed because he's like, how did you know what to do? And I was like, well, I had a cat. Cat's like tuna. And then I um, I was having trouble opening the can because the can opener wasn't very good. And, and he goes, we need to call somebody to go and get cat food. I think like, it's fine. You just need a piece of meat. But it wouldn't take the first piece of meat it was offered. So I was like, okay, it has to be Tina then. Yep, there is a way to open a can if you don't even have a can opener. There's this dude on on YouTube called Crazy Russian Hacker. Have you ever watched him? No, I just stabbed it with a knife. Oh, Crazy Russian Hacker is, first off, he's hilarious. And I know I'm, like, giving out free promos here, but he, he he's crazy and he's Russian and... He's a, he does life hacks, like, you know, how to open up a can if you don't have a can opener without, you know, cutting yourself. I mean, really interesting stuff or, um, you know, all kinds of crazy shit like that. But then he also does a whole bunch of videos where he, like, blows shit up with, like, little homemade science experiments. That sounds interesting. <laughs> like, I just got the five tons liquid nitrogen. <laughs> Let's blow things up. <laughs> it's awesome. That sounds amazing. Theo would like that. Yeah, Crazy Russian Hacker. Look him up on, on the YouTube. Crazy Russian Hacker. But, yes, because uh, um, Theo watches these ones where these guys build a wall. Like, they build three different walls each. And they get given $250 to build these walls. And then the the one, the person that can break any of the walls to get the pile of money in the middle wins the pile of money. Where do these YouTubers get this amount of money? I mean, I'm talking it was serious money because there's like four guys. So they all each had $250 and the prize was $10,000. Where do these YouTubers get this money from? 
I don't know, but there's, like, some YouTube kid, apparently, whose, like, whole thing is he just, like, opens up shit people send to him. And he makes, like, $13 million a year. Yes. There's this woman as well. Um, um, We missed out on our calling. We should have been YouTubers, like, years ago. Yes. Um, she, you know, surprise eggs. Yeah, they were illegal in America for a long time. No, no, no. These are these are American surprise eggs, not Kinder surprise eggs, but surprise oh, okay. eggs they're called. Yeah. And they're American. And you have this woman, and her whole entire thing is opening these surprise eggs, and telling you what's in them in this horrendous monotone voice that makes you want to like scram your own eyes out. And, she and makes children a ton of love money. it, and they'll watch. She makes a ton of money, and then she's and then Theo and Corey used to love her when they were little. And then another thing they do is they watch children playing with their toys on YouTube. They watch children playing. That's just fucked up. Although you know, I remember <laughs> years ago there was a YouTuber. I think it was YouTube, who uh, his whole shtick was he would do videos of himself farting, and he made a ton of. Money and I'm like, you know, my brother does that better than anybody. <laughs> he could have been rich. My brother can he's fart on command. That's weird. No, he and should, he likes he to like if he goes somewhere special or important, he likes to mark his territory. That's messed up. Yeah, he once farted in Captain Picard's chair. Ew. <laughs> I've seen that chair. Yeah, he also farted in the uh, in the transporter room. Um. <laughs> in that transporter room. He visited the set of cheers and farted on Norm's stool. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 he marks his territory. It's great. This, this could be a YouTube video in itself, you know. Oh, absolutely. But I want to go back to this. Uh, your sister left the window open to let the cat in. Well, she didn't realize she'd left the window open. Why is the window she open got... when it's middle of winter? I, I don't know. I want to tell you a little story And this is a true story This happened to me this week Is this when I thought you were drunk? No, no, I'll explain (laughs) that in a little bit Because that, you know (laughs) That was hilarious uh, You're you're not going to know where I'm going with this, Lauren And you're going to get freaked out at first But let me finish (laughs) Let me describe the layout of my bathroom Um, I live in an apartment And my bathroom is very small It's basically you walk in and there's a sink to your right, the toilet is in front of you, and to your left is the shower. Can I ask a question? Yes. Before we begin there. Um, Are there autographs um, in your bathroom? And I ask this for a matter of exposition, just so you can imagine it. No. On the door of the bathroom on the outside, yes. All right. But not inside because, you know, the, the shower would, you know, warp them and things. Anyway. In the winter, the only window I'll ever have open in my apartment is the small window in the bathroom, and that's only after a shower, so it kind of lets the moisture out of the room. You don't get mildew. And... Yeah. So I uh, had you know taken a shower in the morning, left the window open. Later that day, I went in to use the toilet. Just a number one, don't worry, not too graphic. But since Sarah is staying with me during the COVID pandemic, I um, did the very polite thing and I lifted the seat like a guy should do, right? Yeah. So then 
you know, I flush the toilet and I go to lower the seat and the toilet seat shattered. Because it was so cold from the window being open above the toilet in the buffalo winter that I put the seat down and it just, and I just like kind of stood there for a second like in a movie and went, huh. Wow. Hope Sarah doesn't have to drop a deuce right in anytime soon because I'm going to have to go buy a toilet seat. So yeah. Uh, moral of the story, uh, don't leave your windows open too long if you know you're going to have to shit anytime in the near future if you live in Buffalo in the winter. Maybe you need, like, I don't know if you had them there in, in schools in America, but you you would often, in the older schools, have wooden toilet seats. Maybe you need to invest in a wooden toilet seat. Uh, I, I don't want a wooden toilet seat. That's just too outhouse-like for me. <laughs> it would give the original Victorian East End feel to your apartment. <laughs> Which, you know, although I do have to say I'm kind of okay with the toilet seat shattering because it gives me an excuse to buy a new toilet seat because that's one of those things you don't think about buying very often. And I'm like, eh, it's probably been there a few years. About time for a new one. Yeah. Did you get a, a, a themed one? No, no, I just got a plain one, you know. this, you know, Because you got to get the kind that matches because of the way they screw onto the base and everything. But uh, did, you, did you do the handiwork yourself? Oh, I did it myself, yeah. It's, you know, two screws, and then you just put it down and put the screws back in. I'm not that idiotic. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so should we get to the thing about me being drunk? Oh, yes. All right. Okay, for, for regular listeners to the show, they know that I am a diabetic. And one of the problems with um, having this fantastic disease is one of the medications I'm on makes me incredibly, incredibly sensitive to heat. So I always prefer the cold anyway. Well, I'm in the the bedroom recording an episode with Lauren, and unbeknownst to me, Sarah got home from work, and it was freezing outside, and she was so cold, she cranked the heat up in my apartment, which I didn't even know because I'm in the other room. (laughs) Well, all of a sudden, the heat that in the room I'm in kicks on, and it jumps up like 20 degrees hotter, and I'm... I'm sweating and I'm like kind of woozy and going back and forth. And Lauren just looks, she's like, are you drunk? And I'm trying to explain what's going on and she's just laughing away. Yeah. Yeah. I laugh at the serious side effects medications. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, to be fair, she didn't know it was a medication side effect. She just, all of a sudden I kind of got a little loopy and slurred a little bit. You were getting very loopy in the episode as well. Yeah, well, it happens. <laughs> and I just thought it was a replay, you know, of Halloween. You know, we've got such a great guest coming on tonight. We do. And we've talked about farting in Picard's chair and toilet seats. <laughs> that was you. It, I just, I talked, I gave a lovely story about a cat. Yeah, a cat came in the window and I fed it tuna fish and I'm all wholesome. Yeah, great. You know, and I'm trying to I'm trying to impress a Princeton professor who's coming on our show to talk about Greek society and ancient Greek literature. But I, I wait, you know, there I am. My brother fart on a norm stool. <laughs> well, come on. I mean, I mean, a lot. Of the problems that happened within Greek mythology were down to Zeus being a bit, you know, 
Naughty. <laughs> and so. a lot of things that happened in Greek society had to do with that uh, that little hole the farts come out of, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know so, what they say, yeah. once you go Greek, you don't sit for a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should we go to our day in history? <laughs> Please. Let, let, us, let us do that. All right. All right, give me a good day in history, Lauren. I wasn't going to say, I was just going to go straight to my today in history. <laughs> okay. Today in history. Ooh, good one. Thank you. Right, so it's my turn to go first now. I don't know. Right. So, December 14th, 1812, the French invasion of Russia led by Napoleon Bonaparte officially ends with the French having lost as many as 530,000 people. You know, there's a great overture that came out of that. The Tchaikovsky, you know. Yes. Is that me being nerdy again? Yeah, that is you being nerdy again, but that's better than your fault stories, so. (laughs) All right. Well, I got a good day in history for our... uh... For our neighbors to the north, because today in history, December 14th, 1967, Prime Minister of Canada, Mr. Lester B. Pearson, announced that he's retiring from politics. He's succeeded by a Prime Minister who made the finals list for the greatest Canadian of all time, and obviously, um, to people on the other side of the border... Best Prime Minister Canada's probably ever had, Mr. Pierre Trudeau. Now, of course, you know, his wife was a little notorious, but do you know who Pierre Trudeau's son is? Um, Would it be the current Prime Minister? It is Justin Trudeau, the current PM. But yeah, today in history, his father became Prime Minister of Canada. And a great Prime Minister he was. Mm-hmm. See, I can be serious. Yes. <clears throat> I'm sure he farted. Oh, my God, Brian. Although they're, they're French-Canadian farts, so they, they kind of smell like uh, poutine. Oh, dear me. I mean, she's going to tell her students to listen to this. Yeah, she is, isn't she? Professor Holmes, why do French-Canadian farts smell like poutine? <laughs> Oh my God, you're messed up. You know, you're right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop talking about flatulence. I think we should just get the guest on now. Yeah, let me fire up the magic interview box. It's the magic interview box. All right, and I am gonna flip the switch. Lauren, it worked. I got her. I got her on the line. Yeah. This is another one of those guests, Lauren, that when I sent the email out, I was sure I was going to get I a nice F you back. Yeah. <laughs> we got a yes all the way from Princeton University, Professor Brooke Holmes, who is the smartest person in any room she's ever in, which is it's, it's ridiculous, especially since she's at like Princeton where like everyone is smart. Yeah. Well, get this, Lauren. We got the smart one here today. How do you think that's going to work? Are you afraid I'm going to embarrass us, Lauren? Yes, I am very afraid. It's a real possibility, you, Brian. It's a distinct possibility. But anyway. I have nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> don't have nightmares. It's going to be fine, and you can rein me in. Now, 
We are going to be discussing Greek literature, Greek history. We're going to be discussing cultural studies with the great Professor Brookholm of Princeton University. Welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings. Thanks for having me. It's a it's a long title, I know. It's tough to say, isn't it? It's rambling. <laughs> it's a rambling. So, first off, th- this was not that was not smoke being blown at you at the beginning. I mean, I've read your work. You're the smartest person in the room anywhere you go, aren't you? How does it feel to be the smartest person in the room wherever you go? Well, it's, you're very kind. I don't feel like I'm the smartest person in the room wherever I go. Uh, but I think it's actually, I think when you write a lot of times, especially about weird stuff like Greek medicine and, and Greek philosophy, and you never know who's reading your work. Um, and you don't, you know, it's a kind of a hopeful conversation. Um, and, you know, so it's actually really nice to to meet you and, and you know, hear that you've, you've read the work and you're interested. And, and I just love talking about this stuff. So it's it's great. Yeah. And, and you write about it in a way that, you know, if there was a time machine and we could translate it into Greek and take it back to the Greeks, they'd be going, wow, we did this. This is pretty damn cool. We were cool people. Check this out. I mean, it's just, I don't think a lot of people in, you know, Western society right now realize how much of an impact Greek literature had on modern culture, modern, even American society. I mean, it really changed the way the world thought and still does. I mean, Greek philosophy is so ingrained in our society now that it's, it's, um, it's it's a, it's a crazy topic. Um, what cut you into it so much? Oh man, I mean, it's an interesting question um, because I do think they're they're fascinating, the Greeks, and you you get into them. But um, I had always thought that it was an accident uh, because I was at Columbia and I wanted to do literary theory and I was studying Russian because I was kind of came of age right when. The Berlin Wall fell. I went to college. I thought I was going to work for the State Department. So I started doing Russian. And you I realized I wanted... You were a Hasselhoff fan, weren't you? Hasselhoff. <laughs> Hasselhoff on the wall. Light up jacket. That was a, yeah, I mean, it was about that era. Yeah. I was there, too. It's okay. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, I realized that I really wanted to do literary theory. That's where all the kind of interesting conceptual stuff was. And I needed another language to get into the comparative literature major at Columbia. And... You could do Greek in two years of Greek in the time of one year because they had an intensive Greek class. We call it Turbo Greek at Princeton. And so I did Greek to get into comparative literature. And then I just I got pretty into the Greeks, partly because I've had a really hard time speaking Russian. It's a really hard language to speak. And I thought with Greek, I could I could just read it. But I mean, I think what you know, to, to what you started with, like it. I've thought a lot about this, how I got into classics. I did my degree in comparative literature, but but became a classicist because it's hard to get a job in comparative literature. Um, is that, you know, I went to Columbia. I was in the core. I didn't go to Columbia to do the core, but I was in this kind of environment where even though the Greeks are um, not read and, you know, it's not like antebellum American colleges where everybody's reading this, but at Columbia you do. And I, I kind of had it in mind that like, I wanted the answers. I want to go back to the beginning. What do you do? You go back to the Greeks. And I think that there is a way in which when I look back at my career now, I could see that that desire to go back to 
origins or to the beginning was kind of there. And I think about that a lot because it's in the work that I do, but I also try to think critically about it because what do we, what are we trying to say when we say the Greeks are there at the beginning? And it's not just that they created X and we're genetic, you know, descend, genetically descended from them. It's much more complicated, right? It's, it's about, I guess I would say two things. One is they create a set of philosophical problems that I think we're still living with. They don't have the answers, but they create a set of concepts that have problems built into them that we're working through. And then the other part of it that I really like to emphasize a lot now is that the, the way that the Greeks, we live with them is because people read them and responded and read and responded, not just in what we call the West, but in the Arabic world and Northern Africa and India. I mean, the Greeks were like, you know, this huge, these texts that just people kept responding to and creating conversations around. And when you do medicine and science and philosophy, it's really diasporic. So it's really, you know, Islamic philosophy. It's a lot of different strands of tradition that come through. So that's something I think is this kind of material textual tradition is so important to understanding why they're so present because so many people read them except the chinese who were like hey greeks we got this yeah we're, yeah. we're there I before mean, you you know yeah they've got their own i mean and actually the greek and the chinese is one of the big comparative projects yeah. now because it's one of the ways that people think well here's a civiliz- a civilization that wasn't as it were so directly influenced by the Greeks, although even there, you know, there's some kind of the trade networks are intense in in the ancient world. Yeah, well, they, absolutely, and they had to be, and you, you know that they were picking up on each other's philosophy. You could see it. I mean, if you start if you start comparing ancient Greek and Chinese philosophy, like we all do, you, know, you start seeing the parallels. I can't believe I just admitted I do that. Everybody I know right now is just just shaking their heads, going, yeah. <laughs> we always knew there was something wrong with them, but no, but it's true. You see the influence they had on each other. Obviously, they kind of came to different results, though. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think like one thing you know, we don't we don't know how much and when the influence happens. I mean, it's at certain points. But one thing that I found really striking there was a, an exhibition at the Met, and I'm not going to be precise. I'm still working out my like Chinese dynasties, but it was. Um, a fairly early statue, like I want to say like third, fourth century CE, that looks like it was influenced by Greek statuary in the sense of the musculature, which is, you know, a way of seeing the body. Like Shigeki Sakurayama has done a lot about this. Like the Chinese are not as interested in musculature, but this statue looks sort of Greek, but it's kind of a one-off. So like, it's not like they think, oh, natural, nat- what we call naturalism oh, we finally get how humans are supposed to look, and now they just start doing it. They they encounter it, and they're like, hey, like you say, we got another way of talking about this, and we'll keep on doing that, you know, or we keep on our own path. So I think that's also important, too. Like, yeah, the they Greek, come into contact, but it's not like, boom, you know? Yeah, the Greek were far more into the body than the Chinese. I'm, see, I'm with the Chinese on that one, because, I mean, you could see me on cam, so my ideal would be, like, the baggy robes where no one could see what I look like, you know? That would be definitely me. Uh, no Greek statues here. But they're totally unrealistic. You know, they're not actually anatomically correct. That, like, the Heracles, like, the way they do the abdominal pack or whatever it is. I mean, it's very stylized. And what's so cool about Kurihama's work is he shows how the Greeks, and I can see this in my work, too, they get very interested in muscles as expressions of what it means to be an agent, what it means to be someone who can act in the world. And so that's why they get so invested in representing human bodies, 
super, super muscled because it's a way of expressing a certain kind of male autonomy. Well, yeah, they were very much into the, you know, physicality being um, the prowess. Uh, which is funny because they're so they're so remembered now for their intellect over their might. So I, I just don't get it. I, I'd love to imagine like you know Homer's running around with his shirt off, all ripped and buff, telling stories. But I just don't think it was happening. Well, there's. I mean, actually, I think what's cool is as you start to see in the fifth century, there's a lot of competition between medicine and philosophy over who has the right to to tell humans how to live well, and so. You know, athletics is important. You have Galen, you know, second century CE. He's like talking about, you know, even in the Hippocratic text, like why athletes are not the epitome of human behavior because, or human physique, because they're too fit and it's not healthy. And they're advocating for a notion of humoral balance to kind of articulate a different way of imagining human perfection. So there's a lot of debate in antiquity between different ways of thinking. Of that is why I am so down with Galen. I'll tell you, when I when we emailed back and forth and I said, oh, I'm a big fan of Galen, it's because, I mean, you know, I'm not in the best of shape. So Galen's like, that's cool, you know, you're okay. <laughs> but... It's all the it's all in the mind. It's it the is. Mental. It's all in the mind. Of course, I try to hide that behind the hair, too. But <laughs> Galen... Um, and they were yeah, into beards, I, I, so I, I, you would like that. What's that? They're into beards. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, facial hair. Me too, especially during this year. You know, I don't have to go anywhere. It's great. <laughs> Speaking of which, totally off topic. Have you been uh, Princeton all doing everything from home? You staying safe? Yeah, I mean, I live in New York, so I've been uh, in an apartment in New York for most of the pandemic with my two kids and my husband and. Um, well, we're, we're cozy. I don't have access to my office, so that's been difficult. But Are the kids digging in? Uh, you know, I think they're happy to to be home with their parents. Um, my son is a second grader, so we've been, you know, remote school and all of that. All right. Got to ask you something, because I, I, I have no kids. I do have a niece who's a teenager now. And every once in a while, I'll go over her homework with her and stuff. You, as the smartest person in any room in the world, prepare yourself for this new math that they're going to have the kids do when you're helping the kids with their homework, because you're not going to get it. It's going to make no sense to you whatsoever. I'm not a math person. Even if you know it, and it's just, I mean, either, but I mean, I go, oh, you just do this. She's like, no, you have to write this all out. And it's like, great. No, terrible. As an educator, you should start telling people this new math sucks. That's just <laughs> where I'm going. Lauren, again, is just shaking her head right now. To, oh, all oh. all of it. Every <laughs> single part of it. <laughs> uh, Lauren, you are a big yes. fan of, of, of Greek literature, too. I am, yes. What, uh, before we get too nerdy, because you know I'm going to get too nerdy, so I'm going to let you jump in right now and ask a question before I go totally off on this conversation. Um... What is your favorite piece of Greek literature? Um, you know, I love the Iliad. It's an easy answer. It's funny because I've, I've worked a lot to, to expand the canon and to think about classics outside the canon, partly because I work on a lot of weird texts. But I love canonical literature, too. I mean, I think, you know, I work on tragedy. But Homer, I mean, the Iliad is an amazing, amazing text. And it's funny because I think that with the Odyssey, 
you know, I read that in high school, not the whole thing, but, you know, I went to public school in Washington State, and we read, you know, excerpts or something at some point. And then, and maybe it's because I went to Columbia. The first thing you read in the core is Homer's Iliad, and I still have my Lattimore. I always teach Lattimore. I think, you know, people say oh, it's hard for undergraduates, but it's like the closest thing to Homer. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out who did what to whom, and, you know, it's so violent, and nothing happens. And then, you know, I, I came around, I think when I was in graduate school to really loving the Iliad because you realize, um, it's about, it's about the failure to protect. It's about, you know, it's about parents and children and vulnerability and how, when we feel vulnerable, we, we act violent, you know, and create destruction. And, you know, and I love the end, you know, with book 24 and you you get Achilles is like, he can't, he just can't manage his grief and his rage at not being able to protect Patroclus. And, you know, the gods say, you can't keep, you know, punishing the, the, the deaf earth. I mean, Kofa Gaia, the God, you know, I mean, the, the Hector's body, he's dead. You can't get anything out of it. You're not going to get satisfaction out of this. And people look to the Antigone as a story about, you know, vengeance and burial. And, and the Antigone is amazing. I love the Antigone, but it's already in the Iliad about, human emotion and how it drives so much violence yeah it's there's a reason it's considered one of the all-time greats because it is one of the all-time greats i know you said it's an easy answer but no i mean there's a reason some things are considered so great and people say oh i feel bad because it's so common but no the reason it's so common is because it's so good (laughs) you're right I absolutely love the Iliad. I always said the Iliad is one of the two great adventure books ever written, that and Dante's Divine Comedy. Those are the two that I think everyone should read. And you can sit with them for a long time. I don't get tired of the Iliad. No, and you can interpret so many things in so many ways, and you can it, you can change your thought process on it as you read it from time to time. It's 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 an amazing piece. It's... Yeah, and you know it's it's interesting because like you talk about interpretation, like one of like this is you get in a scholarship and you you know I'm not a homeric scholar and I'm kind of glad I'm not, but they get people got very hung up, right? Is this individual genius or is this just oral formula? And I actually think you know those are it's a hive mind. It's a it's you know there's a poet I think he's going in there and I think there are complicated illusions, but like as a text, it forces you to think about literature as hive mind at some level it's not just an individual genius you know no and the amazing thing about the what so much survives of the greek literature of the time and you mentioned earlier um medicine and philosophy as well as tale in literature and adventure we see the entire ancient culture through the relics i mean it exists we can still see how they live which you can't so many other ancient civilizations why were they able to why were they able to have their survive more so than a lot of other civilizations was it just that they were better at actually writing it down is it that they knew that it was important to keep for the future when other civilizations didn't i mean what obviously it's a interpretation on your part but why do you think so much of their culture survived Wow, it's such a you know it's such a hard it's a hard question. And yeah, you I thought think, it was just going to be goofy stuff. Yeah, well, I think a lot about this, you know. And I mentioned earlier, you know, there's textuality and and there's written traditions, but you know, there's also I mean, early on, like you know, Athenian tragedy is is about cultural 
I don't say cultural imperialism, it is cultural imperialism. It's a little bit like American culture, right? Like it, they managed to spread this cultural idiom around the Mediterranean. And, you know, so then you have the Hellenistic period, you get Alexander the Great, who's, you know, Macedonian, but I mean, Greek culture has achieved a kind of brand-like quality so that, you know, under the Ptolemies in Alexandria, they're trying to outdo, you know, classical Greeks in being more Greek, more literary, you know, the poets there are trying to be more elusive, there's no more, and you see the same thing, I think, like the work that I'm doing now is trying to think, you know, we know that Greek philosophy and science is influenced by Egyptian and, and Near Eastern cosmology, and we know more, you know, than we did even, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, but like, what I'm looking at is in the Hellenistic period, where the Greek philosophy and science is, is becoming reabsorbed into a kind of syncretic culture and the Greeks have kind of managed to brand a philosophy of nature. They've created this idea of nature that creates a set of problems around what it means to be in a body, what it means to have a soul in relationship to that body because lots of cultures have soul. And those problems around nature start to travel because of these textual traditions and people comment on them and people puzzle over them and people come from all over and they start writing in Greek. So it's, again, it's like, cultural production that gets its own momentum that at the end of the day is not, it'd be like saying what makes, you know, the Americans so great. Well, it's not, you know, it's English, right? It's people are coming here and the culture is producing a lot, but it's like people from all over the world, you know, are doing it, but in English. And, and it's that, I think it's that kind of a, a moment in, in history where then this culture becomes, like I said, it's very diasporic and people, are engaged with as a set of problems that you just think through what it means to be alive through. Yeah, and the Romans, you know, which are also so fascinating from the time, but they, you know, so much of theirs is because of conquering. You know, their word spread because of, you know, they conquered the world, essentially. Whereas the Greeks were more, I don't want to say pacifist, but they, they weren't as... Well, you get Alexander. Alexander's not a pacifist. Yeah, Alexander wasn't. He was kind of an anomaly, though. I mean, come on, and he called himself the Great. So you know, that's he's kind of an kind of an arrogant little bit of narcissist. You know, I don't know. Big drinker. That's right. You know, like Russian had Ivan the Terrible. Now that's a that's a name. The Great. Come on, that's a little too braggadocious for me. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I do think Alexander does have a pretty big impact on you know, like the transition to point A the Greek that we know from the New Testament comes from this change of Greek as a language spoken by people in Greece or in Greek city-states into, you know, I mean, you look at Gandhara, art in India, you look at the Ptolemies, you look at Asia Minor. I mean, there is a lot of Greek culture that spreads as that cultural koine as a result of, of Alexander the Great. So, and, and so there is a military aspect, but you're right. I mean, part of it is that the Romans then hook up to the Greeks. And so, you know, they famously kind of take over both Greek literature and Greek philosophy and, and medicine. Those are three branches of, of sort of Greek learning that get taken up by the Romans as the pinnacle of culture, science, philosophy, and you have to learn Greek and you have to participate in this tradition. And then the Greeks, as it were, hitch their cultural star to Roman conquest, as you said. Um, but it can, you know, continues under the Byzantines. It continues, as I said, under, I mean, look at the, look at the, um, you know, the rise of, of the 
Abbasids in, in, you know, I guess it's the 7th century CE. I mean, that's amazing, those conquests. So there is this, this close connection between military conquest and cultural spread, for sure, that you see at every stage that Greek culture gets hitched to a lot of these empires. Yeah, but not they're not directly responsible for it. They just kind of, you know, hitch on. Which is actually, that, that leads me to something that I, not a lot of people agree with me on. And, and I want to run this past you. Because if you tell me I'm an idiot, then, then I'll, I'll drop it forever. I've always had this feeling, as much as they write about the gods and the soul and the body, that the Greeks were a far more secular society as far as living than a religious society unlike most ancient societies. The Greeks seem to me to be far more secular, that they acknowledge the gods and the religion as allegorical, but not realistic. Am I crazy, or do you see that too? It, you know, it's a really... You're not wrong, and, and it's, a, it's a challenge, right? Because in scholarship, we go back and forth, right? So the Greeks get associated with rationalism and secularism, and you have some like Dodds comes along and says, no, like they have lots of plenty of irrationality, and their gods are not metaphors, but they're, they're not monotheists for the most part. I mean, the philosophers have sort of arid forms of monotheism, but, you know, lived life, the gods are, you know, they're just as likely to be unnamed daimones as they are to be named gods. I mean, they're, so I wouldn't say that they're not, like, lived experience seems to be the divine is present, but then how do you account for this set of texts that you're talking about in the 5th century, where they do raise all these questions about divinity as, where gods are social agents. I always talk about, like, they're social agents. They're people like you and me, they get mad, you have to, you know, Zeus at one point, he's going to wipe out all the humans, and, you know, and he's like, wait, like, who's going to tell me I'm great? Like, you know, they're so needy. And so Alexander certainly ain't going to tell him. Yeah, they get this critique that feels very modern and resonant. And I think you you can't, that's a lot of my work is interested in, how do they come up with these concepts of nature and the physical body? And people will say, okay, now it's secular. And a lot of what I think is interesting is like, what we never stop trying to find meaning. When people get sick, when people get hurt, we're always trying to find meaning. And we need science, but science can't tell us why things happen. And so even, you know, and, and so the Greeks produced a whole other ethics of what it means to be a body and to moralize taking care of bodies. And that's interesting because it's kind of like the way we moralize care of the body or things like that because we've gotten the gods out of, of disease, you know. And so that is really resonant. And I think we can't say why that happened. I don't try to show why that happened in my work in terms of, say, you know, maybe it was because of coinage, you know, maybe it was individual genius, you know, I, but it does happen and it creates this tradition that gains a momentum and gains a kind of coherence that produces these philosophical problems that are very resonant with us because we're trying to make meaning in a world where most of us don't look to the gods. It, it, you know, Lauren, how about that? See, that smartest person yes. in the room just said I wasn't cray cray. You are sometimes, I have to be. <laughs> you know, going back to what you're saying, at the same time, the Egyptians, who were incredibly advanced medically, were still very um, theistic. I mean, they were their gods were not allegories. They believed this. I mean, look at the tombs. Look at the sacrifices to the gods. And yet they were just maybe not as advanced medically as the Greeks, but certainly on, you know, approaching that level. I mean, so this is where I think it is a pretty small subset of Greeks. Like, so, you know, when Socrates is put on 
trial for he's being called atheos and atheos is anybody an atheist somebody who doesn't have your views of the gods i mean socrates has a, a notion of a god it's just not your average person so it's i think that there's a difference between the people who are involved in these philosophical traditions and then you know what the kind of general populace is is doing but it, you touch on a really a question that i think a lot about which is you know, people will point to, say, the Hippocratic writings, and there are cases where they refer to the gods. There's a, few, But there's only a few. And one thing they never do is they never blame the gods for disease. They create a different causal structure that that is only answerable to the techne, the techniques and the science that the, the Hippocratic doctors can control. And it's not secular in a sense that like they work with the cult of Asclepius, right? Like they, you know, maybe the God could step in and heal, you know, but like they do separate the divine from the realm of medicine in a way that in the Egyptian texts, they seem to, to be more porous to one another. Although even there, you know, the, the surgical texts, um, I think it's the Edwin Smith is the, is the surgical text, you know, there's a specialist who's a surgeon and there's not a lot of quote unquote divine, material there and then there might be you know pharmacology or there might be wound care where the gods may be more relevant you see that in the near east too where there seem to be different specialists and one might be involved in say wound care or surgery and one might be involved in what the hippocratic will start talking about as diseases that are unseen or have unseen causes and so in my work what i'm really interested in is why do they what is this, this whole world they create to try to account for diseases with causes you can't see like diseases that you know um produce symptoms like that's why i'm obsessed with symptoms because prior to this the symptoms are usually tied to divine or demonic agents and all of a sudden you start to i don't want to say all of a sudden but one thing you start to see is a whole medical philosophy developed around the idea that the inside of the body can create trouble independent of agents who have intentions and the egyptians do have this whole notion of putrid matter in the body that can cause disease and has to be regulated. And, and as I've worked and thought more about it, I think there's, there is quite a bit of, there's gotta be some interaction there. Um, but again, it, it, it's not just a question of who did it first or what, you know, it's like what, who wrote it down into a system that then it, it's almost like an accretion, right? Like that this became the set of problems through the notion of nature, through the idea of the Greek body, not the Egyptian material as much yeah the egyptians were kind of like uh they were they, they were a little they were a little weird on it so i'm gonna go with the greeks i can't prove it but i'm going with the greeks i'm gonna say the greeks it could be a both and they both do different they you know i mean it's quite like it depends on the question you're asking i think um and from what i can tell the greeks developed this idea in the hippocratic writings about the soma about the body which is very problematic and influential because of the way that they try to deal with this unseen realm without gods the egyptians dressed cooler though you gotta, you gotta give them that they wake yes. one other thing i want to hit on before we go into some of the other writers and, and philosophers that we like was greeks were very um open and expressive about the body like we hinted on earlier and they were very um Let's just say they weren't PG all the time. <laughs> More so than most other cultures. I mean, the Romans were dirty dogs, but they hid it a little better in their writings I don't and like stuff. That. 
<laughs> Lauren, you're upset with this, right? <laughs> Why do you think it is that the Greeks were so expressive about sexuality in a way that a lot of other ancient cultures weren't? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I have to tell this story with my son. He was like maybe five, and we went to go see this Hellenistic exhibition, exhibition of Greek sculpture, mostly Hellenistic, at the Met. The last day it was open, and I was like, I have to see this. For my professional reasons, I need to see this. And it was packed, and I have my son, and, you know, and, and it's totally, but it's like totally quiet. And he's like, Mommy, look, it's a penis. Mommy, it's another <laughs> penis. And I'm like, I'm like, like, this is heroic nudity. This is the way the Greeks expressed their idea of the idea. You know, and, and, and like, you know, they exercised naked. And, you know, it was like a kind of costume. There's a famous piece by, um, by an art historian on Greek nudity as a, as a costume of, you know, musculature, heroic nudity. And he goes, can I, can I play naked? Can I do gymnastics <laughs> naked? You know, I was like, okay, you could do gymnastics naked. But, you know, it was just this moment, like, here you are in high culture, and of course that like their penis is everywhere and your son is like, there's penises everywhere. And, you know, and you're sort of like, yes, but it's high culture. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me um, tell you something. Don't feel bad. You said your son was five at the time. Yeah. All right. When, uh, when I was in my late thirties, uh, my brother and I had gone to England to go see Eric Clapton because we're nerds and we took a little side trip to France and I forced my brother to go to the Louvre because my brother hates anything having to do with art or culture. He just bores the hell out of him. And we're walking around the Louvre. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you know how the Venus de Milo's just there in the middle of a hallway with just yeah. a little rope around it. Like you can walk right up to it. And it's like, yeah. not like in an American museum. It's just there. And I'm literally circling it for like 20 minutes, just looking at it from every angle and admiring it and thinking that we have no idea who made this or what, you know, this is incredible. My brother comes up, looks up at it, and he goes, huh, you could see her ass crack, and he walks away. So that was a, that was an adult in his 30s saying that, so don't <laughs> feel bad about your five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like the line between high culture and low culture. You know, you put it, you make it look like a Greek statuary, and it's, and it's, uh, it's okay, you know, it's heroic nudity. Yeah, he um, saw an ass crack. That's uh, my, the cover of my gender book they did. I fought with them a lot over the cover. And I finally got them to switch to a statue, and they had it positioned just so you could see the butt crack. And I was like, and they were so mad. I was like, this is really tacky. Could you just cut it a little bit differently? And they, you know, it was like they were so upset that I. <laughs> well, yeah, we, um, it's so yeah, we live in a Puritan society that I, we have. I'm in Buffalo, New York, and we have one of the. Um, the replicas of the statue of david it's actually a very famous one because it was the one that was at the paris exhibition is in buffalo new york now and it's in the middle of one of our parks it's gorgeous and it's you know it's huge some I local mean, people totally have actually thing. gone and put underwear on the statue of david because it's obscene that he's naked yeah well i mean it is interesting the shift like that you know, male nudity is much more common initially than female nudity where it's all draped, you know, and then the Hellenistic period is supposed to be this shift where you start to get more female nudity. But certainly... I like that back, shift. I'm a yeah, guy, like, you know? The beginning, like, the, the, like, if you think about these muscles are not real, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're not anatomically correct. Like, this is 
the this is actually like an abstraction of an idea of the human body as perfect. And Polycleitus, who's the you know famous Greek sculptor from the fifth century, writes a canon about how you know sculpture embodies like human perfection and the bounds. And Galen, actually, you probably didn't know this, Galen. We have most of uh, the testimony for Polycleitus's canon from Galen, from a medical writer, because he's so interested in how this notion of perfect proportion that you see in sculpture reflects notions of balance and the humors and the body. So they're obsessed with the body as literally the embodiment of materialization of a certain kind of perfection or beauty. So from that perspective, you know, nudity is, is itself a performance of something. It's not nakedness. It's, the bodying forth of, of some kind of almost mathematical proportion or human perfection or, or balance. I want you to really quickly, just to repeat that it's not real, it's not true, the, those muscles and the rippled body. Just say that real quick, just say it again. It's not real. I am sending I mean, this to every ex-girlfriend right now. <laughs> it's not real. See, I told you I wasn't lying. <laughs> I mean, some of it is, but I think. Oh this... no! You just done, you just threw <laughs> me under the bus. It's, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a um, it's like a Barbie doll. You know, it's like the way you know Barbie's not it's not totally unreal, but like you know, people say like she can't really stand on the you know with the way <laughs> and her proportions. I think even with Barbie, she'd like fall over right if she were a real human female. It's a little bit the same thing. It looks it's designed to look like a slightly, you know, like a photoshopped version of, of human Ide- you know, ideal. Human ideal, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't dig it. <laughs> it's painful. It's photoshopped. Think about it as super photoshopped. I'm going to start photoshopping my head on other bodies. That's going to be, that's my <laughs> new thing. That's going to be my publicity shots. Yeah, you've referenced Galen a few oh, times. Please and... don't do that, Brian. No. <laughs> you... no, please. Oh, Lauren, I won't no. send them to you. Don't worry. I don't want... I, oh, why would you? <laughs> we let's go on to Galen for a little bit because Galen is, like you said, um, oh, here she comes, um, the cat. Galen's writing is so way out of left field from everything else that was out there until he wrote. Um, do you think this was literally? just him expressing things that they had known for a long time? Or do you think this was all him really coming up with it? You mean in the sense of his synthesis of so much material? Yeah. I mean, he is, he is a fairly exceptional figure, Galen, partly because, you know, he had this incredible education because he was going to be an architect. His dad was an architect. And um, and he had all this training, like all the major philosophical schools he trained in. And, you know, he knew a ton about philosophy. And then he trained to be a, a doctor. And normally, you know, that's a kind of, you would apprentice. Like, it's not a thing you go to medical school for in those days. But he traveled all over the Mediterranean. You know, he had this, he went to Alexandria. You know, he had amazing teachers and in um, Pergamon where he grew up. And so, you know, he doesn't get his first job until he's like 30, you know, so he's like a graduate student, you know, but I mean, in those times, like that's very late to start a career. So he has this amazing education. He clearly has this, you know, super capacious mind. Um, And it's very daunting to read Galen because he really does, um, you know, write so much. But to speak to your question, I mean, 
One thing that's interesting about Galen is that when Galen is writing, he's very against the idea of the medical sects. So he's above all sects. And I think part of it is he's so confident in himself and his own capacity to figure things out. Um, partly because he did a lot of, you know, hands-on research. Like, he did a lot of experiments on his own. He worked a lot with anatomy. He wasn't going to believe something just because it was dogma. So it allowed him to supersede, you know, certain divisions that had been, like, factionalized, right, and become kind of medical philosophy himself. And so he synthesizes so much material. and But he also puts, I think, a very original spin on it because – he is coming at medical questions with this incredible anatomical precision empiricism. I mean, he's an amazing surgeon. He's intimately acquainted with the body and all of its details. And then on the other hand, this capacious philosophical mind. And so that's what I think makes Galen so interesting. If you're interested in questions of nature and the body more generally, it's like he he's constantly taking philosophical ideas and pushing them up against the kind of flesh of the body that, you know, or like, that like he has really interesting ideas about plants and why is he interesting ideas about plants because he's so interested in how like the human physiology can work without the rational mind controlling it and that must be like plant intelligence so like he has this intimate knowledge of bodies in their specificity for all of his idealism he's very well aware of the variety of bodies and their pathologies he knows a ton but he has this very philosophical mind so i think it's it's a lot of different things that allow him to just both synthesize a huge amount of Greek philosophy and Greek medicine and Greek medical philosophy. And then he's just, you know, he's writing constantly. He's constantly producing. He's con- He's got logorrhea. He's constantly, you know, just vocalizing and writing it down. And you, you find that if you wade through Galen, I mean, he's got a set of, of kind of, common ideas he comes back to but he writes about everything and so that's why he just he dominates medicine for the next you know learned medicine over the next 2,000 years essentially. Yeah I was going to say he had a good run there it was only a couple thousand years. A couple millennia yeah. yeah. He um he Galen is kind of my proof that I believe the culture was far more secular because I think in most other societies just the amount he wrote and things he wrote he'd have been killed for heresy. I mean, it's interesting because Galen himself is super into this demiurgic God, right? But it, yeah. it's like nature. So part of his issue is is that he believes in Plato's demiurge, creator God, but he's not the God of Moses. He has very interesting things he says. It's not the God of the Hebrews because the God of the Hebrews could make, you know, make anything out of anything, whereas his creator is constrained by the properties of matter and natural properties. So he's very platonic in that sense. But on the other hand, this stuff about plants is like about what I was talking about. It's like quasi mindfulness in the natural world. So he's interested in what, you know, from philosophical kind of fancy word, not I play New York Times spelling bee. And I was very mad that they did not accept the word imminent. Like, I think it's a word I use a lot, like imminent. He's into the imminence of nature, which is to say a natural being is there's no puppet. There's no God who's making it move. It has a kind of maybe divine intelligence, but fully fused with its being. And that's what you're talking about with secularism, because it's trying to explain the way complex life works without imagining a God or God. Without answering the questions you can't answer with God did it. Yeah. And and Galen is one of the things that's super cool about Galen is because he's he's very interesting about epistemology. 
And so there are questions you can answer with experiments and anatomical demonstrations. And then there are just questions you can't answer. And God is a question you really can't answer. So he believes in God. He thinks if you look at a human being, you can't say this is a product of chance. So he's not an atomist. So he's, I mean, the atomists are your real secular materialists in antiquity. Although they think they are gods, they just live in like, you know, Club Med, like between Cosmoy and they're like totally unconcerned with us. But that's not Galen. He's into providence. But once we're made, the creator is not involved anymore. You know, and that's where you're getting the secularism because that's the naturalism, I think, of, of Galen. Um, yeah, but so you're right. I think that's what you're getting with Galen is that that sense of he's really interested in natural things and he's interested in life. Yeah, and he, he's so, like, you, he's a wordy little bastard. Let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised you know so much about Galen because, you know, I'm... I'm I'm a when nerd. I ask my students, they don't know. <laughs> and I they skipped college. So. <laughs> well, you probably wouldn't learn anything about Galen in college. He's not taught a lot. No, I blew it off. I said, I don't need this. I uh, I got more important things to do. I have, you know, 10 years of drinking I got to get done. But... <laughs> oh. Galen would. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I know that we're running close to time, but I want to see if you'll come back on for another episode. Because we've scratched the surface, and I know you got a new book you're working on. You got in some new work I've 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 heard through the grapevine. So I wonder if you'd come on and discuss that. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about. I could talk about sympathy and and you know anything you're interested in. I don't know, Lauren, if you had questions. I didn't want if you wanted to talk about any gender stuff. Now we, I could probably yes, say a little Lauren, bit jump on in there. I don't want to bore you. Very difficult because the Greeks. The Greeks come to um, England in the medieval period through um, the Muslim sector. So how much of it gets sort of lost in translation in between the coming from Greece and then ending up in England? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends on, you know, what you're looking at. I mean, one of the interesting things about, you know, the medical stuff is when you have someone like Vesalius, I know who's not British, but I mean, that's where you're going to get through the medical schools yeah. in Southern Europe. Um, on the one hand, there is this idea, we have to go back to the original text. And so, you know, sometimes we get a story about Vesalius, like this is the beginning of modern anatomy. And he says, Galen is done. And, you know, we'll just cut the cord and, you know, we're going to start a brave new world. And actually Vesalius is interested in the text and they're interested in learning Greek because Greek isn't really, you know, there aren't a lot of people reading Greek before um, the Renaissance and then what's called the medical Renaissance, which is, you know, a hundred years or so after that. And so they start going back to the texts and it's partly to get around the, the short versions they get like the compendia, right? Like um, from the Arabic world um, that like, well, like calendars. Yeah, like the like his canon and um, the canon of medicine, for example. Like they condense everything that's important, and they're getting this from Arabic authors who are then translated into Latin. And then partly, I think, out of competition, they want to go back to the Greeks themselves. And this is something that, you know, so it's triangulated through their engagement with the Greco-Arabic translation movement and those, you know, and then 300 or 400 years of medical and philosophical engagement um, with someone like Avicenna or Razis. And, and then on the other hand, 
they're going back as philologists to the text because this is the period where, in fact, you know, Greek is reintroduced as a kind of scholarly pursuit, and they want to read Galen. They're reading texts that haven't, you know, been read for many years, and so it's it's a triangulation, I think. Um, and I think that's, I mean, it might be a good way of, of when we think about what we talk about now is reception. You know, sometimes we want to talk about going back to the original through philology. And then other times we talk about no reception is about the mediation that like we're never going straight back to the Greeks. It's always mediated by multiple, multiple layers and modernity. And, and, and both these things are true. And I think that's what's so hard in the academy is like we're, we're trained to hold on to positions that we can defend against people who hold the other you know, position and it's one or the other. And the truth is it's often both. And in this, you know, like when I go back and I teach my students, if we're reading Sophocles or Homer or sometimes in medical texts, they're not as complicated philologically. I'll say, you know, partly we're going to do philology because we it's about engaging with other minds and we want to respect the otherness of the way they think. And it's a little bit like being a scientist and like trying to study like cuttlefish brains. Like we can't just project what we want to see from these texts. And philology is that kind of a tool when it's used well, I think, not just rigor for the sake of rigor to say, oh, you didn't go to college, so you can't, you know, you don't know anything. Or like, it's terrible the way philology is really weaponized as an elite tool. But when I teach my students, it's not, it's not about getting it right for the sake of getting it right. It's like, we can try to correct our own assumptions about the Greeks by trying to read them carefully, but we're always going to try to read them because we think, they're important to broader historical stories or we think they still matter now. So we have to both be good philologists and we have to be really thoughtful about why we're reading them. I mean, classics is a discipline named after value judgment, but most classicists can't talk to you about value. Like, why do we value this stuff? And that's that's why I emphasize these really complicated receptions because there's so many people who've wanted to read with the Greeks. And that's cool and great, you know? And, and yet, like... We always have to be thinking, why do we read them? Um, because we want something from them now. Does that, I don't know if Lauren, that answers your question, but it's a sort of like both and. I mean, I think what I'm trying to answer for England is true at every moment. Like, we try to balance the sameness and the making connection, and then we try to balance the difference. Like, they lived in a different time, and it's a different mind, and, and we have to respect their difference and try to think with them, because that's how we learn to think differently now. Oh, no, that's very interesting um, because the Greek language is quite important here because it's the way that um, the Welsh translated the Bible from Latin into Welsh. They they translated it from Latin into Greek and then from the Greek to um, Welsh. And then the English did the same as well. So um, even the Bible has been, you know, was went through this mediation of being going through Greece and yeah. Greek. So it's quite, yeah, it's very interesting. And it's if very you think Greek is weird, you should hear Welsh. Oof, that's a weird language. Do you speak Welsh? Uh, I do, yes, speak Welsh. That's so cool. Yeah. I have some Welsh ancestry, but I don't speak Welsh. Uh, there could be lessons. See, you know, Lauren's getting her going for her master's now, so she's going to need some help from uh, from the smartest person in the room, and I think they might be able to trade for some Welsh lessons. What do you think? I'm a barter here. <laughs> Better than Bitcoin. Welsh is, 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 is. No, Welsh yeah. is, um, it's an interesting I, I language. Welsh is valuable enough to trade for tuition. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know, you, I know you're really pressed for time, so I just want to ask a couple more real quick questions. One, 
how many students sign up to the class thinking they're going to get like really tasty saganaki or like really good Greek food, which is the best thing about Greece. I, I, I love Greek literature. I love Greek philosophy and history, but come on, saganaki is the best, isn't it? Saganaki is the best. Saganaki is any well, any fried cheese is probably <laughs> like gonna be up there. But I mean, I love yeah, I love Greek food. And I have to say one thing: um, we do, when in normal circumstances, try to take students to Greece and give students the opportunity to go to Greece. And for me, when I, I was in graduate school at Princeton, and um, and there was this fund that allowed me, I, it was for Compload and Classic students, and I don't know, there just wasn't, maybe there was a lot of money in it, or there was no one else applying to it, but I got a lot of money to travel to Greece, and that, yeah, that's a big part of it. All I mean, the Saganaki you can eat at that point. All of the Saganaki, I would hike all day, and, you know, go to these sites. I was going to say, you I, still weigh, like, Saganaki. 85 pounds. How do you do it? I eat Saganaki <laughs> once, and I blew it up to over 300 pounds. <laughs> Pure metabolic luck i'm okay yeah. well that you said you were hiking a lot i'm not doing any of that i'm hiking to the chair to eat the saganaki back to the couch and the other question is will you agree right now because i'm gonna i got you on the line and i'm gonna hold you to it because it'll be recorded that you'll come back on hey if you you know if you're interested in you can see i just love to talk about i this absolutely stuff. So am interested i could go for hours sympathy. On this, I'll come back and talk about sympathy. <laughs> yes, we are going to schedule a part two uh, in the near future, but I will let you go now because I know it's almost time for the babysitter to go, so you got to get ready. Lauren, do you have anything to say before we let the good professor go? No, thank you very much for agreeing to join us tonight. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your questions. It's so fun to, it's fun to find other Galen aficionados. Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be talking to you soon. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Good night. Bye. Good night. Lauren, what did you think? I really enjoyed that. I was just all the gender questions went out of my head then. And it's going to be a part two, so you're going to be able to think of questions. Yes. yes. Ugh, I've been, that's all I've been doing all day is finalizing my um, gender essay. I already wrote about suffragettes. But thinking about how something is rent- written through the lens of, you know, male or female is, is an eye-opener. Yeah, it, it was just so incredible. I mean, it, I, I, I can't even begin to explain how cool it is to get people like this to come on our show. I mean, like I said, she's just the smartest person. This is Princeton University, Lauren. This is not like, you know... And look at all, we've had Harvard professors, we've had Princeton professors, all these people agree to come on and talk to us, Lauren. Why? <laughs> Do you bribe them with fried cheeses from around the world? I, I, you know, I might start, but I mean, it's working so well, and uh, I'm glad we're going to get to do a part two with, with, with Professor Holmes. Um, she's incredible, and to take the time out during this pandemic when things are so messed up to uh, actually get to hang out with us for a little while. Is amazing. Do you but... know? You know? Um, do you know that? Um, I'm not quite sure when this will air, but um, do you know that I was only meant to be off work for 17 days? Yes. Well, we've not gone back into a full lockdown, but we've gone into restrictions where open, including pubs, they have to close at 6 p.m. and they're not allowed to serve alcohol. Really? Yeah. It's crazy. It is they're allowed crazy. to open for take. They're, they're allowed to open for takeaway services after six p.m., but they're not allowed to serve alcohol at all. What? Uh, I I can't believe that. 
<laughs> what are you going to do? Um, well, I, I don't know when... Well, it's reviewed every three weeks, and the three they're reviewing it again on the 17th of December. So either I go back to work a week before Christmas, or it's the new year for me. It's crazy. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you better get used to staying at home. Yeah. Which is a real shame, because I was really hoping to be able to go to, you know, wonderful places to do my dissertation, my master's dissertation. Well, I look at it this way, Lauren. You get to stay home and stay comfy and concentrate on school more than uh, than work, which is, uh, I think, very important right now. Yeah, I just can't believe you, you've never been to college. I mean, you do so well there. I reason, uh, you know, college, the whole idea kind of pissed me off. Plus, when I was in high school, my last two years of high school, I took a bunch of courses so that when I graduated high school, the exact same time I graduated high school, I had a college equivalency in my in my major. So it's oh. not so it's not like I did nothing. I, I I mean I have what is considered a college equivalency um, that I completed while I was still in high school. But uh, it's a long story short. Uh, right after high school, I started a theater company and decided to um, you know become world famous, <laughs> and uh, it didn't work out so well. But uh, you know I've gotten by. And um, I, I do find it funny that I have actually lectured at several colleges now and have never been to college. <laughs> <laughs> I love pointing that out, too, as I'm in, like, I've done that after lectures, say, you know, by the way, I, I never went to college. You're wasting your time. No. <laughs> <laughs> it is not a waste of time. I encourage everybody to continue on with education. Boy. And everybody I mean, should do you say... education. I wish I did. Um, but by the time it would have been feasible for me to go back, went to the, 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 the company failed, and I would have been able to do it, you know, I was having to work full-time. And, you know, then I was in a job that became a career. So, you know, I never had the opportunity. It's, maybe, it's one of those things I'd probably go back. If I could go back in time, I would definitely have gone to school. But it probably would have warped my outlook on things. Even more than they are now. Warped. I was gonna say it probably would have prevented me from asking <laughs> Alison Weir about uh, boobs, and it probably, you know, about I probably wouldn't ask about uh, Napoleon or Rasputin's ding ding, and I probably wouldn't have wasted the time of Brooke Holmes asking if uh, people take her course for Saganaki. So, <laughs> but at the same time. can i tell you what do you think do you think we should start to wrap this one up and call it an episode yeah i think we should because if not i'm gonna have more jokes like i did at the beginning of the show i'm gonna have more jokes for you lauren i know you love my jokes so much Uh, we're gonna have to get theo on so he can hear your jokes and see what he thinks you'll love them you'll love them but uh i also think it's a little buddy he he really looks forward to look to speaking with you. Well, because I'm Santa. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I was pointing out to someone. Now, people, when you listen out there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin a little bit of podcast magic for you. You're not hearing us live. Nope, nope. We're all pre-recorded. So you don't necessarily hear us when we're recording. <laughs> and, so, and sometimes they're not released in the order they were recorded. And I was talking today to my co-author, who I just completed the wrestling book with, because we're uh, going over, you know, finalizations for, for like, you know, stuff to be blurbs on the back of the book type of thing. 
And he said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, oh, it's great for my show. I got an interview with Professor Brooke Holmes from Princeton University about ancient Greek literature. He's like, that's awesome. What was your, who's, who'd you interview last? I'm like, mm, we did Bat Boy's concession speech. <laughs> <laughs> so we went from Bat Boy's concession speech to Princeton University's professor of classics. I love this show, Lauren. <laughs> Me too. And I that, like hearing your friends give feedback like, about the Halloween episode. That was funny. Yes. Your it, friend about who was listening to it in work. And, <laughs> <laughs> and like giving you a running commentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, and we got some other great shows coming up soon, Lauren. Oh, my God. Oh, we got some we great stuff. I cannot wait. And, you know. This is, uh, it's been a hell of a year. We're in December. You know, we're heading towards the end of the year. 2021 is right around the corner, but we're still going to be here. So. Yeah. Might take a couple of weeks break around Christmas time, simply because people won't be available to speak. Yeah, but we may have a couple in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, may have a couple in the quiver. Yeah. Or I might come on and just ramble. <laughs> Brian unplugged. Brian sings the Christmas classics. <laughs> oh, that would be bad. Brian tastes fried cheese from all over the world. Oh, I would. So, I'm pitching that to the Travel Channel tomorrow. Okay, I just travel the world and taste different fried cheeses. If I survive the trip, you pay me. <laughs> if I don't, I die happy. <laughs> That's right. You won't even be able to get the smile off my face with plastic surgeons. <laughs> Probably won't be able to go to the bathroom either. Well, what about how many countries can Brian get kicked out of? Oh, that wouldn't be difficult. <laughs> that would be very... I think every country that's on the list that's listened to us, which is up to 41 right now, 41 countries we're listened to in Lorne. As far as our number one downloaded episode of all time is now officially Sarah Beth Hopton. She surpassed Lawrence Krauss and is now the most officially downloaded episode. Congratulations, Sarah Beth. We'd give you an award if we had one, but um, maybe we'll have her back on. Well, Christmas time, you're going you're gonna to see Sarah at Christmas time, aren't Oh, yeah, you? that's right. That's right. She's coming into town with the bag of dildos, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, I know on that note, we should really call it a show. <laughs> so, from, uh, let's get, should we give ourselves Greek names? No. Brightavius? No. All right, then, from Brian in Buffalo. And Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Good night. Yeah, that is eating nutty again, but that's better than your thought stories, so. <laughs>